We're going to turn now to God's words. If you've got a Bible on you, I encourage you to turn it on or open it up. We're going to read a passage from it that we're going to be considering over the next few Sundays. But just to begin by saying it has been an amazing year Uh, starting this. This was a big part of the reason we were invited to come and be the vicar here, was to start something brand new that would be completely different to what's gone before and might reach out to some new people. And we've loved doing it. Um, I was sort of chuckling to myself during that first song where it talks about all things once sown in weakness, God raises in promise. Because often it's felt like it's pretty weak. It's felt pretty fragile. It's felt like those first shoots of a plant that you're just desperately hoping will take. And it's felt like that. But isn't it good news that God takes our weakness and puts over it his strength. He doesn't need our strength. He doesn't need our ingenuity. He's got plenty of that for himself. All he needs is our willingness, our honesty, and our weakness. And I think that's what we've presented to him often here. And he's filled that with his grace and his goodness and his glory. But the good news is that we are just getting going. There's so much more to come here. There's so many more Novas to baptize and scream at the back. There's so much more fun to be had. There's so much uh, that we've been dreaming about that still hasn't come to be. These moments can become... um, Great opportunities to look back, but know that we're just so excited about what's to come because there are hundreds of thousands of people in this area who we believe Jesus loves and is desperate to be in relationship with. And we will do whatever we can to play our part, to be useful in his hands as he continues his plan um, that the knowledge of the glory of God would cover Berry as the waters cover the sea. Just before we dive into the Bible, sometimes people ask me, um, what can I do to help here? You know, what can I do to kind of get involved and get stuck in? And we need to do better at kind of formalizing this and displaying this and making it easier for people to get on board with. And that's probably one of the things we will pursue this year. But just if I was to sketch five things that would really help None of this, I'm sure, will be rocket science to you. But these are five things that you could do, and many of you are already doing, and I'm so thankful for, to get behind what God's doing here. The first thing I'd say is to commit. Come along as often as you possibly can. I know that Sundays aren't completely free like they would once have been. But if you could commit to what's going on here, commit to being in the room, commit to changing the atmosphere of the room like Hillary was leading us to, commit uh, coming on the front foot, if you like, coming prayed up, coming ready to share and encourage other people. Be here as often as you possibly can and come along just to be there, but to, to support what's going on. Keep coming. You know, I know that sometimes a lion seems like the best thing going, or maybe you've had a hard week or Monday's coming up and you could really do with another couple of hours prep. But we need people to commit here to what God is doing, to being here. Because it might be that that Sunday there's someone new sat next to you and you're the one to make the connection. It might be that you're the one that God speaks through that day and we are taken in a new direction in prayer or in worship because of what you've brought to the table The first thing you could do to support what's going on here, commit and be here as often as you possibly can. Second thing is to pray. Pray when you're at home for this place. Pray for the people that you're sat around now. Pray for the ones that we long to be sat around you in the weeks and months to come. Pray for what God's doing here. Pray for the people that you see around here. Pray for the area, the streets that you pass on your daily life. And as you pray, would you dream, you know, what God do you have for this place? What could my part be? We 
have a regular prayer gathering on a Wednesday morning between 7 and 8, and it's become like my favorite meeting of the week. You know, I turn up groggy a lot of the time, but I leave empowered and encouraged because I love to be with people who are praying and excited about what's going on. Come then if you can. I know that some of you can't, and it's no pressure to that slot, but just to say pray as often as you're able. And as you pray, do what we did a bit today and take some time also to listen. Because it might be that the key for something significant in the future, God gives you in a moment of listening to him in prayer. Commit, pray. Third thing is give. Give what you're able to. Yes, financially, like we've just done with the basket coming around and the card machine and all that stuff. But give of your time as you're able as well. You've got an amazing array of gifts. Just looking out, I know some of the amazing things God's put at your disposal, your talents. You might think, well, I do this all day at work and church is completely separate and they could never need my skills in that regard. Chances are, if you're good at it, we need it. Churches need all sorts of people doing all sorts of things to make them function. And you have amazing gifts and amazing resources at your disposal. Could you give as generously as you're able? And I know there's so many other things. I know times are tight financially. I know diaries can be tight. And particularly after COVID, people are thinking about where they're going to invest their time. But if we're going to see the things that we want to see, the things that we believe God's led us towards here in Bury, please could you give to make that stuff possible? Yes, financially. And talk to me or read the leaflet at the end if you want to find out more about that. But equally with your talents, your gifts, come in to make tea and coffee so that others can benefit and have a nice welcome. If you're musical, to worship, lead and to take people into the presence of God with you. But also you might have gifts and it might just be saying, is there any way that you could use this at St. Peter's? Spoiler alert, the answer will almost certainly be yes. We will find a way because we want to incorporate everything that God has put in you into what he's doing here. So commit, pray, third give. Fourth thing is invite. The, the people that I long to be sat in the pews around you are your friends and your neighbours and your colleagues. You've got connections into places in this community that I'll never have access to. And I've got some connections that you won't do. But when we knit that together and invite people to come here, to worship Jesus, to come to Alpha, to pray, to come to an event or a social or whatever it might be, your invitation can go such a long way. Someone once taught me that the key with this is not to say someone else's no for them. We can think, oh, they wouldn't be interested or they won't care or they'll be too busy to come along to that thing. And so we don't invite them because we just anticipate their no. If they want to say no, they're perfectly able to say no, but maybe they say yes. Maybe they want to come. Maybe you wouldn't expect that they'd be interested in prayer or Alpha or a Sunday, but they turn up unexpectedly. For us to see this place grow and flourish, please be inviting. Invite people along. And if there's anything that's stopping you inviting someone, anything that makes you feel a bit awkward, come and let us know, because maybe there's things that we need to do to make that even easier. Commit, pray, give, invite. And finally, and it links to what I've said already, but serve. We are desperate for people to help with all sorts of things going on here from welcoming people we'd love to do that better to hosting people with tea and coffee and other things to music and prayer there's things through the week that we'd love to make happen kids ministry and youth ministry and schools and all these things that we've got inroads into but could really explore we'd love to 
be more overtly compassionate, outwards facing to the community, blessing them, meeting needs in Jesus' name, and showing them a God who's able to do all things. Please serve as you're able. If you've got ideas for that, come and speak to us. If there's things already going on that you could slot into, brilliant. But maybe, again, there's ideas that you've got. Could we explore that, or could we give that a try? Let's have that conversation, because the ideas aren't just going to come from the front, if you like. They're not going to come from the top. We believe God's gifted all of us with insight and ability. And it's as we knit that together that this body will be built up and that God's glory will increase for Barry's sake and for his great glory. So five things you could do to support what God's doing here. Commit, pray, give, invite, and serve. And any of that that you're doing already, thank you. Really, really thank you. We have built this together. It's not me and Sarah. It's not any ingenuity from the Church of England or anything like that. It's us together that's made this happen. And any more that you could do in any of those areas, thank you again. Uh, I'm desperate to see more and more happen here. And it'll be as we all increase in those areas. I think we'll see it come about. So we're going to turn to Scripture now. We're starting a new series today. So like I said, if you've got a Bible, please turn to Luke 15. And this series is called The Father's Prodigals. I'm going to start by reading you a quote. This is a guy called Tim Keller who pastored a church in New York for many, many years and wrote a brilliant book on this parable. He said, I believe, however... That if the teaching of Jesus is likened to a lake, this famous parable of the prodigal son would be one of the clearest spots where we can see all the way to the bottom. If the teaching of Jesus was like a lake, the prodigal son story would be one of those areas where we could see most clearly all the way to the bottom. What Tim Keller is saying is the prodigal son, to use its common name, is one of those bits of Jesus' teaching where we see most clearly, most succinctly, what Jesus is all about. All of Jesus' teaching is important. All of Scripture's teaching is important. But if you want one area where you get straight to the heart of what Jesus is all about, the prodigal son, to use its common name, is a brilliant place for us to start. This parable, which some of you will be familiar with, and for some of you this will be brand new, It has layers and perspectives. It's deep and it's rich. And it's loaded with truth about the gospel. It's loaded with truth about the news that Jesus came to announce and to demonstrate with his life. This parable is packed with truth about the good news of Jesus and how that good news appears and presents itself to different groups of people depending on their background and their personality and their lifestyle. Tim Keller, the guy I quoted from at the beginning, he wrote a book about this parable. And the subtitle of the book says it all, really. He entitled the subtitle, Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. For him, the heart of the Christian faith is this message of salvation by grace, working itself out to different groups of people in slightly different ways because of their backstory, their lifestyle, and everything that's going on for them. And at the beginning of a new year, and being once around the block, if you like, for this new worshipping community, I can think of nothing better than to go back to the heart of the Christian faith, right? Sometimes we're tempted to think that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is like the billboard advert that brings new people into the church, right? 
God's out to save you. He's gracious. He wants to forgive you. That's the thing that gets people in. But what this parable teaches us really is that it is that. But this parable is also the fuel that keeps us going in the Christian life. There's not a day that I won't need the gospel. I need it as much decades into following Jesus as I did on day one. There's not a day that we graduate from this. This is the fuel for the whole of the Christian life. Not just the thing that gets people in through the door, but the thing that propels us out of the door to continue on living the life. To be honest, we need to hear this message every week, every day, sometimes every moment. Because there's such power in the gospel about Jesus. And because there's such power, the enemy will do everything that he possibly can to get churches and Christians to deviate from this main message, to start making the main thing peripheral things and to become known for things that aren't this. Everyone, of course, would believe that this is the centerpiece, that God is a God who's come to save, to redeem people. However they come to him, he draws them into a new family But it's so easy for us to deviate from this main message. And I resolve that that won't be the case for us at St. Peter's. The prodigal son story takes us to the heart of the Christian faith. It's a message that newcomers need just as much as old timers. We each need the message of the gospel every single day in order to carry on in our faith. And I don't want to be a place that's had that distorted or where that becomes second fiddle to something else. This is the main message, that God has come in the person of Jesus to express and to invite people into the kingdom of God, forgiving them by his grace and taking them into a new way of living, that they would be part of his new creation, making this the norm all the way throughout the earth. I don't want to be a church that deviates from that message because that is the power of the gospel. And I don't have the power to change anybody. This church doesn't have the power to change anybody. But the name of Jesus and the gospel that he came to announce and demonstrate has the ability to change things radically. And many of us have testimonies to that effect already. Let's read the passage then from Luke chapter 15. And we're going to begin at verse 11. Just to put this in some context, at the beginning of Luke 15, Jesus has told two parables already about lost things that get found. He starts with the parable of the lost sheep, and then he goes on to tell the parable of the lost coin, and then this is almost the trilogy being completed. This parable comes third up on the same theme, and it begins like this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father. Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. To set the scene a little today then, before we dive in in a bit more depth over the three Sundays to come. The first thing to know is that in this story, Jesus is talking to a mixed audience. Luke 15 verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This parable is delivered to tax collectors and sinners on one hand, but also to Pharisees and teachers of the law. And we can see this kind of dual strand thing going on. Tax collectors and sinners, well, they were the... Those deemed immoral by society. Tax collectors were seen as cheats who would take the tax for the country, but then would take a cut on top for themselves. And sinners, well, that's everyone who's overtly sinned, right? Everyone whose sin is obvious and outward. We can look at them and just by their appearance almost, by their dress or their demeanor, we say they're a sinner. They're immoral. They're pushed out of society. The interesting thing here is that it says that that group gathered around Jesus. They seemed desperate to get close to him. There was something about Jesus that intrigued them and compelled them to come closer. The tax collectors and the sinners had no problem coming near Jesus because they wanted to find out more about this person who was changing lives and setting people free. Even though their lifestyles were a million miles away from his, they were desperate to be close to him and to hear his teaching. 
The second group then, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These are the well-to-do, the morally superior, those who've got it all together, whose look and outward appearance no one could say sinner, but could only say they're wonderful. The Pharisees had a tendency to add to the law so that the law could never be broken. If you weren't allowed to go 100 miles an hour, the Pharisees would say, well, let's not go 80 miles an hour so that we don't even get close to the line. Let's add an extra rule, an extra burden on people because we don't even want to get close to breaking the law. We don't want to get close to doing something that God wouldn't want. They added rules and burdens so as not to break the law. They're so desperate were they to be right, to be on the right side of everything. Jesus later in Matthew 23, he says um, to the Pharisees that what they've often done is made the main thing secondary and made secondary things the main thing. There's a famous instance where he says, look, you guys are tithing even your herbs and your spices, but you've forgotten the weightier matters of justice and mercy. You've made, whether there's a tenth of your dill and your cumin, the big deal, where God's like, I want mercy and justice and glory. Yes, do that, but you've forgotten what's most important. You've made what's secondary primary and what's primary secondary, and you need to get this back in proper order. It fascinates me that the Pharisees and the, tax, the, Pharisees and the teachers of the law, rather, it says that they mutter. It's almost like that kind of disapproving chatter, but they don't come to Jesus and really challenge him because they've seen what happens when people do that before. And Jesus teaches them in a way that they've never heard before and they leave with their tails between their legs. They mutter disapprovingly, almost like the whispering behind a teacher's back when they're writing something on the board, but then when they turn back around, obviously everything goes quiet and backs are straight. It's that insidious way of muttering something to disapprove, but not actually being willing to do anything with it. It intrigues me massively that the tax collectors and the sinners, though their lives are furthest from Jesus, are the ones that flock towards him. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those who should be closest to him, they come reluctantly, they come muttering, disapproving, not quite sure of who this person is. And I think we have to admit today, don't we, that the opposite is true in the church. People whose lives today we would say are the tax collectors and the sinners, however you want to describe that, tend to want to be anywhere but church because they they think they're going to get judged. They're going to get looked down upon. They're not going to know what's going on. And it's the the well-to-do, the morally superior, you might say, who tend to find their ways into our pews. That makes me immensely sad because it means that what we're preaching isn't what Jesus was preaching because he had the ability to draw people towards him whose lives needed healing and restoration and somehow we've had the ability of keeping people away. Lord, let it not be the case here that anyone who needs you be sent from our doors or deemed unworthy. This should be a place where people can come from any background, in any condition, and meet the unconditional grace of God at the door, in the lives of people like you and me. Where the church has pushed people away, we see here the complete opposite. And I long that that would be true of us. 
A second bit of real context before we dive into it in more depth over the coming weeks is that Jesus says that there are three main characters, not one. This story will commonly be called the story of the prodigal son, right? That's how it's always taught. But the very first line of it says, now there was a man who had two sons. So there's a man, a father, and there are two sons, and they each get not necessarily equal in terms of words, but there's something said to each of them. That's why we've called this the father's prodigals, because for me, it captures something better of what's going on. I don't want to go into them in too much detail today. That's what we're going to do through each of the subsequent weeks. But to sketch something briefly, the father is God. And through this parable, we learn something about his character and his nature, that he is a God who seeks out. He's a God who's willing to break the rules. He's joyful. He's tender and he's fierce. The younger son, well, he's scandalous, rebellious, taboo-breaking. His rebellion is overt. Everyone gets to see it. He's the one that would be deemed immoral and irreligious. The tax collector and the sinner, if you like. The older son, on the other hand, well, he's dutiful and obedient. He's respectable. His sin is covert. It's hidden behind a mask of respectability and doing the right thing. He's moral. He's religious. In the grouping that we're listening to this, this is the Pharisee and the teacher of the law. The parable that Jesus tells that we've just read and we're going to pour through through this month has something for each group. It shows us something about the father. It shows us what the gospel is for the irreligious and the immoral but it also shows us what the gospel is for the moral and the religious. Because both sons need saving. Both sons are in error. They're just in two very different kinds of error. And this parable has something to teach all of them. It's not going to be as simple as to say, well, you're going to be more like this one or this one. Each of our hearts is going to have elements of both, I'm sure. But here we will see the gospel reach two people in two different ways. But don't let it ever be said that there's one group of people that need Jesus. Jesus came to say, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. And here we see that both sons were lost. And here we realize that all of us without Jesus are completely lost. Everyone needs him, wherever they're starting from, whatever their background, their lifestyle, their temperament, whether their sin is public for all to see or hidden behind closed doors, everyone needs Jesus, me included, religious leaders included, the saints of today included. Everyone needs Jesus. And when it all comes down to it, the thing that's going to make the difference at the end of time is whether you knew him or not. Grace is available for everyone, for both groups and for every mixture of the two that we might encounter today. Two people, two groups rather, came to hear Jesus. One gathered, flocked, and the other muttered. Both need saving. The parable tells us about two sons. One wandered and one stayed. But both need saving. And Sarah and I believe prophetically that this prodigal theme is timely for us as a church. It's partly why we're exploring it now. It's right, obviously, for every church and every Christian. Jesus taught it, and like Tim Keller says, it goes right to the heart of what the gospel is. But the sense that we get is almost like God's got a highlighter out, 
And for St. Peter's at the moment, his highlighter is on prodigal. And so we want to understand at the beginning of this year, what would it be like to understand this story in even greater depth? To understand the father behind this story in even greater depth. To be a church that welcomes prodigals of both kinds and every variety. The good news is that whatever your backstory, whatever's happened in your life to date, there is grace for you. That God looks at you with love. He chases you down to express his goodness to you, to tell you his gospel again and again. So can I encourage you over these next few weeks, maybe you want to read this story at home and spend some time in prayer through it. Commit to coming each Sunday, and if you can't, listen back online or your podcast channel of choice so that you can hear this story from each of the three perspectives, the younger son, then the older son, and then the father as we're going to progress through it. I trust that in this is something of incalculable worth for all of you and for us as a church community. Because if we get to the heart of what this is, not just in our heads, obviously, but down into our hearts, and if we live out the message that we're going to hear again and again through this parable, then this church will never be the same. Because prodigals of every variety will come here and meet the grace that's found in Jesus just like we have. My prayer is that this will become true in me, in us, and then for Berry and beyond. That we would be some of those who, with the Father, welcome prodigals of every variety home.